welcome. All right, we have a special privilege, and it is to hear from one of our own, Pastor Brent Parsley. I want you to give him a huge one chapel welcome. Come on, Pastor Brent. Hi, good morning. Uh, man, it's really, really great to be uh, in here with you this morning. I've, uh, some of you may know I'm the next-gen pastor, so I'm over kids and students and uh, so I've been spending a lot of my time back there with Kids for the One, and great stuff is happening back there, man. It's a blast. Today, they've got a spaceship back there, and they're like all on the bridge of the spaceship, like moving forward, learning about service, and the whole team's got to work together to make the ship fly, to, to serve the way that we're supposed to, the way that Jesus wants us to. So it's really, really fun. Um, stuff and Tag is going great, and so thank you for your investment in the next generation of young people here at One Chapel. It's awesome. Um, I got, yeah, if you, if you need notes, uh, ushers have them, and so I think there's some ushers, there's somebody up front, I think, that wants us. Aha, uh-huh, awesome, thank you very much. Okay, hey, let's pray and let's dive in, all right? You ready? Okay. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you. Pray that you would speak to us today from your word. We thank you that we have hope because of you, and we thank you that you desire to bring about your will in us. So we pray that you would do that today as we study the scriptures. Speak through me, and God, help everyone in this room to hear what you want them to hear. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Uh, In late 2006, my wife and I had had our first child, Aurora, and a wonderful little blessing to our lives. And we had a pediatrician appointment. So we went to this appointment, and he looked her over, and he was checking her out, and he, he looked at us, and he said, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned about where she is, her, her core strength, and she's not moving as much as she should. And so as new parents, you know, we're like, whoa, wait a minute, what does this mean? I mean, when you're new parents, that's crazy stuff to hear, right? You're afraid of everything. When you've got three or four kids, you're like, uh, they'll be fine, who cares? <laughs> but, but when it's your first, everything's a big deal. And so Marie and I, we looked at each other in the pediatrician office, and we're saying, what, what, what does this mean? And suddenly we were disappointed. Like, wait a minute, this is our perfect little angel. You mean everything's not exactly as it should be? And so this sent us through a whole slew of testing, right? We had to go do a bunch of stuff. We had to get an MRI. And so I'll never forget watching my little baby girl of a few months old being put under and having to be put in a big MRI machine and go through the scanning. I'm standing there watching, thinking, what is happening? This is crazy stuff. I never thought this was going to be our first child. And I was disappointed. And so we went through all those processes and they got those test results back and they sent them to a neurosurgeon. The neurosurgeon, he was looking it over and so he called us into the office and we went, you know, with fear and trepidation wondering, oh, what is this gonna mean for the future of our family? And he looked at us and he said, well, let me, let me explain something to you. And he showed us the x-ray and he showed us the picture of the head. And he said, well, see, they were, they were afraid it was going to be hydrocephalus, which means the ventricles are enlarged. And there's too much fluid in the brain. It's a problem that causes de- de- developmental delays, right? And so, so he looked at it and he said, let me tell you what this is. We call this, and he had a very long, drawn-out scientific medical name that I don't know or remember. And he could tell that we were perplexed. And so he looked at us again and he said, basically, it's benign big head. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did you say benign big head? (laughs) He said, yes, it's benign big head. It just means she has a large head. And come to find out the pediatrician said, here, come here. Let me, let me measure your head, dad. And so (laughs) put the tape measure on my head and said, oh, look at you. You're off the charts as well. And so I have a massive head. If you've ever met my dad, Ken Parsley, massive head. And so, no, I'm not kidding. It's huge. It's like, it's got its own gravitational pull. I mean, it's like a, it's like a thing. And uh, we got big heads in our family. 
So, so this was a situation where we, we were faced with disappointment. Now, thankfully, it turned out okay, but there was a period of time where we were freaking out. What is this going to mean for us and for our lives? Well, we're in a series right now called Sidekicks. And this series, basically, we're just kind of taking a look at some of the unsung heroes of the Bible, right? And if we're honest, we all look at ourselves and we say, oh, I want to be the hero. I don't know. I don't want to be the sidekick. I mean, I, I, that's not me, right? I'm, I'm definitely the hero. Everybody wants to be Batman. Nobody wants to be Robin. Nobody wants to wear that, right? No. Well, well, anyway, so everybody wants to be the star of the show, the big hero. There's a movie that my kids really like. It's called Sky High. It's a Kurt Russell movie. Oh, some fans. <laughs> Sky High. Uh, it's, it's a Kurt Russell movie. And, and in this movie, it's, a, it's about a superhero high school where superheroes go to get trained and, and to learn how to be what they're going to become. And so on the first day, freshmen, they fly on the school bus up to the magical school in the sky, and they go up and they go into the first PE class, and the coach of the class, he puts them on a platform, checks out their powers, and then decides who's going to be the hero and who's going to be the sidekick, depending on their powers. And so he'll declare in front of the whole class, hero, or sidekick. It's very discouraging for those kids who become the sidekicks. Don't you think we do that to ourselves sometimes? Like we, we, we want to be the star, but we know, I don't know if I really am. I don't know if I've got the goods. I don't know if I'm able to do this. I want to I propose something to you today, that we do away with all of that kind of thinking and not try to find out if we're the hero or the sidekick, because I'm pretty convinced that God is not really concerned about who's the hero and who's the sidekick. He's not assigning roles like that. He's looking for people who are faithful. He's looking for people who are willing. And so let's put the notion aside. Any of us who are faithful or will, who, are, who, who are willing can do anything that God wants us to do. All right, so, so let's put, I think that's kind of the point of this series that we're in. And so, so far, you know, we've looked at a couple of men. We've looked at a couple of warrior men. We've looked at, we looked at Jonathan. We've looked at Benaiah, the guy in the pit with a lion on a snowy day. He's a crazy man. Well, lest you think that this is just a boys club, today's sidekick is a woman. That's right. It's ladies' night. Oh, what a night. <laughs> and this woman is, uh, I don't know, she's perhaps the sidekickiest of them all. It's a word. You can look it up, sidekickiest. She is perhaps the sidekickiest of them all. Her name is Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you'll find in Luke chapter 1. And Elizabeth, of course, is the mother of John the Baptist. Or maybe more appropriately, John the Baptizer. It's not like a denominational term, like John the Baptist, like, like Phil the Episcopalian or, you know, Bill the Lutheran or whatever. It's not like that. It's, he's John the Baptizer. And we see her in Luke chapter 1. And, and, and if you think about her contemporaries, right? See, there's, there's Elizabeth and her contemporary is Mary. So that would quickly put her in a sidekick role. If you think about her son, John the Baptist, John the Baptist is the contemporary of Jesus he kind of overshadows everybody. And so, so these two are serious sidekicks in our stories. But I know that God wants to speak to us through the life of Elizabeth and through the disappointment specifically that she experienced for much of her life. Now, you already know that life is filled with disappointments. I mean, you've already experienced it. I mean, for you, perhaps life has been really hard. You know, maybe your father just gave you a small loan of $1 million so you could start your first business. 
That's about half the room. That's a, if you're, what, what is that? It, that was Donald Trump. Just don't worry about it. It's fine. Life is really hard for him. Uh, or, but really, there, there are serious things that have happened in our lives, right? I mean, think about a friendship that has dissolved. You think about... Uh, you know, that business deal that you just were relying on. It really needed for this to happen and it fell short and didn't come through. You might think about a marriage that dissolved and that lifelong love that you longed for, that you thought this was it, it was forever and it wasn't. And you experienced great pain and disappointment. Maybe the financial collapse or or maybe the loss of a home, or even the people I think about this weekend who have lost so much again in these floods. Or God forbid, the, the loss of a child that no parent should have to endure. Every one of us is going through something, or we have gone through something, or we will go through something, or we know people who are going through something. And the good news, everybody, is that we have this book. This book is a story, and we're invited into the story to find ourselves in it and to find some answers and to identify with what happens in the characters in the story. And so today we're going to look at Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5, and here's what it says. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. That's a big deal. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Just the words everybody wants to hear. But this is pretty incredible. Right? We've got Zechariah, and he's a priest. And Zechariah, and then his wife, Elizabeth, she's also in the line of priests. She comes from, the, she's a descendant of Aaron, the priest. And so the scripture records very specifically that they were righteous. They fulfilled God's commands and decrees, and they did so blamelessly. But impeccable, impeccable priestly and religious credentials didn't guarantee a blessed life. Didn't mean it would happen. See, religious people, they... And righteous people, I should say, they have disappointments too. All of us do. And they were childless. And it says in the scriptures here, it says that Elizabeth could not have children. Right now, this is a Jewish patriarchal society, and so they would never say that Zechariah could not have children. But this, the scripture specifically says to us, Elizabeth could not have children, and they were both very old. Thank you very much. The childbearing years had passed them by. It was over. It was done. And they lived with this pain. They lived with this longing. They lived with this disgrace. And even more, they lived with shame. Shame of not being able to have children. Because Levit Leviticus 20 and verses uh, 20 through 21 would show them. They would know these scriptures that, that, that being childless was a sign of a divine punishment. That God was angry and you were being punished. This is what they would think. Genesis 1:28 would tell them that they were supposed to have children and to multiply and fill the earth, and they couldn't do that. Elizabeth would later in this chapter, she'll call it a disgrace. It's a disgrace. Culturally, she was expected to have heirs and to build a family. She was expected to be a Proverbs 31 kind of a woman, and she came up short. She wasn't just disappointed, everybody. She was, she was a disappointment, <laughs> She was a disappointment to her family and to her community. And so the two of these, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they probably just resigned themselves to live with shame and disgrace 
for the rest of their lives. And so for you and me today, how do we respond to life's disappointments? Because we all have them. They, they come to every one of us. And if they haven't, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but they will. And if we're honest, we all have our coping mechanisms, right? Like we, some of us, we just blow up in anger or frustration. There's worry and doubt and fear. There's things that, that we do. For some of us, it's the ever popular Facebook rant. That's a wonderful coping mechanism that far too people use today. For some of us, we may uh, medicate, you know, find different ways to medicate the disappointment and the suffering that we experience, whether it be through relationships or whether it be through, a, uh, through things on the internet or, you know, Netflix. <laughs> I mean, you can binge watch a lot of stuff pretty easy. <laughs> I know from experience. You know, or, or, you know, other things like drugs and alcohol, things to medicate to find our way through the disappointment and pain. And most of the time when we experience disappointment, we just want to know this one thing. We want to know, how do I get out of this? How, how do I get through this? I mean, how, how can I make this thing right here stop? But I want to propose to us today that we decide to ask the more difficult and more faith-filled question when we come to disappointments. And that question is, what can I get out of this? What can I get out of this? Where can I see that God might be at work in the situation, that he may have a plan and a purpose that I'm not aware of yet? Because the truth is, God wants to do something in you. God always wants to do something in you, and he wants to do something in you so that he can then do something through you to take care of and bless other people. But this requires for us to look around, to be aware, to see what God might be doing, even when it seems like he's doing nothing. And I think Elizabeth did this for many years. In verse 8 in Luke chapter 1 says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So Zechariah, this is his moment. He's on duty. He's there for a little while and he's chosen by lots. This is the one time that Zechariah would go in and perform this to, to offer the incense. The one time in his life that he would do it. And God chose this moment when he was offering up prayers, when, when he was close to the altar and what God was gonna do. God chose this moment to reveal this incredible plan to them. And so in verse 11, the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He'll be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born." He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I mean, think about this moment. This is an incredible moment. And Zechariah is saying, Wow, this is crazy. I mean, do you know? Have you seen me? I'm old. This, I, we were done. I thought this was it. I thought we were going to be a disgrace forever. And so he asks in verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I mean, I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Side note, gentlemen, this is a great lesson. I'm old, I'm old and infirm, but my wife is well along in years. 
she has aged gracefully and beautifully. Right? You might want to write that down somewhere because Zachariah knew what was up. So he says this and he has doubts. And so what happens, you can almost hear the indignation in the angel Gabriel. It probably didn't play out this way, but this is the way I heard it. <laughs> He's like, the angel said to him, yo, I am Gabriel. Yo, fool, I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent here to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And so now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you do not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. You're gonna be quiet until this comes true. It's coming true at this appointed time. The promises are real and it's gonna happen. And I'm gonna give you a sign. You're gonna be silent until it happens, but it's coming. So meanwhile, the people were, were in verse 21. They were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. I don't know what this looks like, but poor Zechariah, he's coming outside, kind of dazed, look on his face, and he can't say anything. He can't do anything. So he's playing charades. He's trying to, I mean, he's given every signal that he can. He's like, Right? I have no idea how he got this across, but somehow he gets across to the people that he saw an angel. And this is what happened. So he goes home in verse 23. When the time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, and he had to go and tell his wife the same thing. Right? It's... And Elizabeth finally gets it. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months she remained in seclusion. And she said, the Lord has done this for me. She said, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. We can sympathize with Elizabeth here because we've all experienced disappointments. Some of us, unfortunately, can empathize with Elizabeth here in her exact situation. But Elizabeth is also a great example of how we can respond when life hands us disappointments. And so I think that Elizabeth teaches us to live with trust and obedience in the midst of your disappointment. To live with trust and obedience in the midst of your disappointment. Now, now before you dismiss me as a, just that, with that simple Sunday school answer, I just want you to think about it, right? I, I mean, oh, yeah, good answer. Oh, trust and obey. Oh, I never thought of that one before. <laughs> you might as well have just said, might as well have said, uh, read the word of and pray every day and you'll grow, 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 right? I mean, that's... But I think it's important. Elizabeth had faith. She had faith. But scripture records that she also obeyed. She also obeyed. She continued to fulfill the Lord's commands and decrees, and she did so blamelessly, without fail, over a long period of time. She just kept going. And this is why I think it's important. I think that Elizabeth's faith and obedience, it made her a candidate for God's miracle. Her faith and her obedience, the fact that she continued on, it made her a candidate for God's miracle. Now, no doubt about it, God is merciful, God is good, but I have to think that if Elizabeth had gone into bitterness and anger and said, oh, forget you, I don't, I don't want anything to do with this, I never had a kid and I wanted a kid, if she would have given in to that disappointment, I gotta think that the miracle may not have come to her. She made herself open and available by believing and by remaining obedient. How often do we do this? We, we run away, right? We run away, something happens, things go astray, and we run away from God. We run away from his arms, and we run into the arms of something else to find some other way to fulfill that disappointment. 
Meanwhile, God is here and he's got a plan, but we're running away. So it's not that God is spiteful or mean or vengeful. It's a simple matter of proximity. He's got something he wants to do and we're just going the opposite direction when he just wants us to stay close. And I think Elizabeth modeled this for us. Author Philip Yancey has a book called Disappointment with God. In this book, he, he talks about two pictures of faith. The first is simple. It's childlike faith. Right? It's childlikeness. It's, it's uh, simple believing. It's easy believing. But there's a second one that he talks about, and maybe an awkward term, but he, he just calls it fidelity. <laughs> fidelity. Remaining faithful to a person, no matter what, for the long haul. And you know, to see this in Scripture, we just got to go to the book of Psalms. If you look at Psalms, you see chapter 23. Most of us know that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Right? We know this. It's simple. It's childlike. It's easy. But in the chapter before that, in Psalm 22, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. You see these at work, childlike faith and fidelity working in these two passages. And so... Philip Yancey, he says in the book, Disappointment with God, he says, Psalm 23 models childlike faith. Psalm 22 models fidelity, a deeper, more mysterious kind of faith. Life with God may include both. We may experience times of unusual closeness when every prayer is answered in an obvious way and God seems intimate and caring. And we may also experience fog times when God stays silent. When nothing works according to formula and all the Bible's promises seem glaringly false. Fidelity involves learning to trust that out beyond the perimeter of fog, God still reigns and has not abandoned us, no matter how it may appear. Fidelity. This is the kind of faith that Elizabeth had. There's a second thing I think Elizabeth shows us here, right here in this passage, and it's, it's simple. It's to bring our questions to God. To, to pray, to bring our questions to him. And when, when disappointment comes to our lives, we, we all, we have questions, so many questions. Why? Why is this happening? Why did this happen? Where is God in all this? What am I supposed to do? Is God silent? Does God even care about what's going on? All these questions. I know that Elizabeth had these kinds of questions. And all through those years, she prayed. Her and Zechariah, they faithfully prayed. How do we know this? The angel said, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son. This is going to happen. His name will be John. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. This is an incredible thing. Bring your questions to God. Bring your questions and requests to him in the midst of your disappointment. Your questions aren't bad. They're not. He's not afraid of your questions. He's big enough to handle your questions just take them to him. But when trouble comes, we tend to stop. We tend to stop praying. Oh, I'm frustrated. I don't know what to do anymore. Oh, I'm disillusioned. I don't know if he's even there. Okay, maybe. All of those questions, they are fine. But take those questions to him. Don't pull them away from him. Keep praying. Keep asking. Keep moving forward towards him. It's true. You may not get all of your questions answered. That's not a guarantee 
for us? I mean, these are big life questions that everybody wrestles with and has wrestled with since the beginning. And we will until the end. So you may not get all your questions answered, but what you will get, you'll get him. You'll get him. You'll get relationship. You'll get intimacy. You'll start to understand more who he is. This is what you want. And listen, I can promise you that getting God is much better than getting your questions answered. It helps us to base our faith not on an outcome, but on a person. And his name is Jesus. So the story continues on in verse 26. And this is the part of the story that we all know because Mary shows up, right? The angel shows up to Mary. And so the angel tells her about the birth of Jesus. And we know this story, Mary, she's the hero. We don't care, right? We're not concerned with Mary today, but, wow. Oh, should I not say that? We don't care about the birth of Messiah. Okay, so we do, we care about that. But in this passage, in verse 36, it says, even this, this is uh, the angel speaking to Mary. It says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was, un, who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. And this is the most important part. For no word from God will ever fail. For no word from God will ever fail. This is the crux of the passage. This is the theme for this section of Luke's gospel. No word from God will ever fail. God will fulfill all of his promises. Now, he never promised Elizabeth a child. He didn't. This was never in the promises. But she knew. She knew the scriptures. She knew that he had made promises. She knew of of Joshua, and and I will never leave you nor forsake you. She knew the promises that a Messiah was on the way. She knew this, and she believed. She trusted. And so what she started to uncover was a grander picture, a bigger perspective of what God is doing in the earth. It's not just me. God is doing something, and I know his character, and I know that he loves us, and I know that he's going to rescue us, and I know that he's going to take care of us. I believe in those things, and so I believe in God. She knew his character and she knew his heart. And that's why she could trust. That's why she could have faith. That's why she could keep on for so many years without having a child. She believed that God was good. And it kept her grounded. And then, the surprise of all surprises, she finds that she is part of the story. And this is the resumption of God's sacred story of God's activity. I mean, this is it. It's happening. It's been a period of silence, and now the forerunner is coming. The Messiah is on the way. It's happening, and I am going to be a part of it. She's a part of the salvation history that we're all reading about today. And so as you keep going in verse, in verse 39, Mary comes to visit. It's a wonderful occasion. Mary shows up, and uh, there's, a, there's Elizabeth, and she's got her baby, and it's wonderful. And then Mary kind of waddles in, I guess, and she comes in, and, and she's, she's carrying the Messiah, Now, if ever there was a steal the thunder moment, (laughs) this is it, right? Like, I don't get it. I mean, she she shows up, and and it's kind of like Elizabeth could have easily gone, oh, well, look at you. Isn't this wonderful? Finally, the old woman has a child. It's been forever. One good thing happens to me. And here you come, little young lady, walking up, swinging your Messiah around, right? (laughs) Like, she could have... Is that awkward? She could have easily done this, but she doesn't. 
What does she do? Man, the baby leaps within her. And I don't know what that was like either. Talk about awkward. That could have been scary too. But, and she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the scripture says that she speaks in a loud voice. I don't know what that was like. But Mary's here in a loud voice, full of the Spirit. She says, blessed are you, Mary. It's probably better than that. But she praises Mary. She praises the work of God in Mary. And she praises who she is because this little baby, it's not about Mary, it's about the little baby that you carry. And she says this incredible phrase, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promise to her. And she was speaking to Mary, but she was speaking to herself. Blessed is she who has believed the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. And so this is the third thing that Elizabeth teaches us. She teaches us to look for what God is doing and to celebrate it, even in the midst of disappointment. Now, this is really hard because most of the time it's happening in other people. God's doing things and someone, something happens in someone else's family. Listen, when you're going through this, it's really hard in the midst of a disappointment to look up and say, oh, I'm, I'm so happy for you, swinging your Messiah around. <laughs> but what happens when we do this? What happens when we do this? We start to find out more about him. We start to see what he's doing. We start to see just like Elizabeth that he's good and that he loves us and that he's at work and it's okay. And so faith can rise in our hearts that even though my miracle hasn't happened just yet, I can see that miracles are happening. I believe in him. I know that he's real. I know that he's around. I know that he's moving. I know that he's going to help me in some way and somehow, sometime, someday my disappointment will end. I don't know when that day is coming, but until it does, I'm going to trust him and I'm going to obey him. We can start to see it and we see him working. So if you're going through disappointment, lift up your head, man. Look around. Start looking around for opportunities to celebrate. And when it happens, do it. Speak it out loud. Oh, man, I'm so happy for you. Look what God is doing. He is faithful and true. So in, chapter, in, in, in uh, verse 57, it winds down and John is born and it's an awesome time and they come on the eighth day to circumcise the child and so poor, poor Zachariah, I don't know, I picture him back off in the side by himself. Everyone's kind of celebrating the birth and he's mad because he's over there, he hasn't been able to speak and he probably can't hear either and so he's off there by himself. It's probably been a wonderful nine months for Elizabeth but that's beside the point. <laughs> so he's back there in the corner and so they're saying, all right, so uh, we're gonna name him Zachariah and Elizabeth says, no, no, his name is to be John. We had an angel, we had a promise. We know his name is John. And so they said, oh, Elizabeth, you're crazy. You obviously don't know how this works. Tradition says that he's got to have a name. It's from someone in the family, so obviously it's going to be Zachariah. And so you're obviously a woman. You don't know, so we're going to ask Zachariah. Very offensive. And they go over to Zachariah and say, hey, she doesn't know. What's his name going to be? And so he writes down. I don't know if it's Flintstone style or what it was, but he, he writes down, the boy's name is John. His mouth is opened, his tongue is loosed, and he starts singing the praises of God because he sees that it's true. He sees that the promise has come to pass. He sees that God's redemptive story for mankind is fully underway, and they're a part of it. It's pretty cool. This story is about so much more than Elizabeth being free from disgrace and shame. It's truly about this. It's about the great fulfillment of God's purposes and his promises. But the incredible story for us is that the needs and hopes and fears of the ordinary people, they're not lost along the way. Even in the midst of fulfilling the grand scheme of his plan, he's concerned about the individuals and he takes care of them along the way. I think it's interesting to note that what had been a long-term void in their lives was part of God's sovereign plan. 
He had his eyes on them. It was part of the plan. And he steps in late in the game and he changes the direction of all the past disappointments. They didn't see it coming, but he knew. Sometimes we don't have what we want because God has better things awaiting for us. And through those things, better things awaiting for others. And we wait for it patiently. Oftentimes we get more than we could have ever imagined. I mean, I think about these two. They wanted a son. What they got was a prophet. What they got was a forerunner of the Messiah. And they were involved in the redemptive story of God's work in the earth. And finally, Romans 8, 28, it's a, it's a verse that's familiar that kind of deals with this idea. And it says that in all thi- we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's often distorted for us because we tend to think, oh, that means that if, uh, if I love God, everything's going to be good for me. Well, I think many of us in here, we love God, and we could easily say, eh, it hasn't exactly worked out that way. It's often misinterpreted and distorted. Uh, you know, in the next paragraphs in this passage, actually, Paul starts to talk about the things, right? The only good things that God will work together in all things. Then the things that he's talking about are trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, But he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And why are we more than conquerors? We're more than conquerors through him who loves us and pours out his lavish love on us. No amount of hardship that we can endure is gonna separate us from the love of God. We're gonna come to the table this morning and I wanna ask you to consider all these things as we do, right? Like, It's interesting to me because you see stories like Elizabeth's and Zachariah's all through the Old Testament. Over and over again, you see suffering and pain and disappointment. And uh, I mean, just look at Job. It's out of control, (laughs) Job's story. You see through the prophets and you see all the pain and suffering and disappointment that they talk about and and people in, God's people in exile and things like that. But but then there's this switch. There's a switch that happens in the New Testament. In the New Testament, after the cross, we still read about sufferings. The disciples talk about sufferings. Paul talks about crazy sufferings. We just read some of them. Talks about sufferings, but it's different now. It's changed a little bit because they don't talk about the whys and all of that. They simply refer back to two events, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so it's changed everything for them. It's changed the way that they look at suffering. Their faith now, it rests entirely, entirely on what God did on that Easter Sunday where he took the greatest tragedy that could have happened and turned it into something good and wonderful for every one of us. And so out of it, they get this three-day pattern of there's tragedy and then darkness and then triumph. There's tragedy and there's darkness and triumph. Tragedy, darkness, tragedy becomes a template for how they deal with life and with sufferings because they know I may be experiencing a tragedy. I might be in the middle of my darkness, but I know that there is a triumph coming because the resurrection is real. I know that there's new life. I know this. So the resurrection informed them just like it informs us, uh, informs us that suffering will not have the last voice. But in the end... We will triumph because of him. And so that's why we have these elements today, to remind us of that triumph. We have the 
the bread that symbolizes his body that was broken for us. And we have the cup that symbolizes his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And today, as you come to the table, would you bring your disappointments? Would you bring your questions? Would you bring your heartache? Because he can handle them. He wants to handle them. Would you come and would you participate with him and let the resurrection life of Jesus start to work in you as you receive his body and his blood? We're going to pray over it and then we'll start in the first section, first chair in each section. Just come around to your section and then go back through and have a seat. You, you, if you don't want to receive communion today, that's totally fine, but we just ask, would you please just go around in the line so no one has to step over you? Let's pray over this. Heavenly Father, we love you. And God, we just ask that today you would help us to regain hope because of your work. Because your resurrection informs us that we can have hope, that your body was broken so that we can be healed, that your blood was shed so that we can be free from sin and we can live with power for you. So today, we remember and we want to receive that work in our lives. We're going to come with our disappointments and we ask you, God, would you take them? Would you hold us close? We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. All right, and start in those first sections and let's receive together.